Uh, let's pray and uh, we can begin our class. Our Father, we want to express our thanks again for the camaraderie that we can have with those who have trusted Christ as their Savior. We also thank you, our Father, that we can gather together and that we can be encouraged by one another. We recognize that in the days that we are living in, uh, there can be a tremendous amount of anxiety and even frustration when we see the things that are taking place uh, not only in our country but in the country that are close to us. We ask our Father that that anxiety, that frustration would be minimized when we realize that you are in control and that you have your uh, you have the pulse of every nation on this earth and that all of it is moving in a direction that will bring about your kingdom on this earth. We recognize as well, our Father, that as we trust in your sovereign purposes, not only for our country and the world, but in our own personal life, that you are going to lead us to greater depths of confidence in you and greater maturity. We ask that the things that we talk about today will be a source of encouragement and instruction for us. We thank you that the confidence that we have in scriptures can increase on a daily, regular basis. And may that be true in each of our lives today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, I introduced you to a couple things, and I just want to briefly go over just in case any of you have any questions about it. And that is, you probably remember I mentioned this little, uh, these different charts, how uh, people have taken the Bible and they have kind of reduced it to various doctrinal statements. And uh, what has happened over the years is that uh, the Bible has basically been set aside so that we can have one solid creed. And uh, over the centuries, that's exactly what has taken place. And this is just a thumbnail sketch of the various creeds that are out there. I am in no way minimizing these creeds, but what does trouble me is that oftentimes the creeds are more important than the Bible and the Bible just gets a small little place in, uh, in the, uh, the scheme of thinking. Another way that I have uh, suggested to you, and that is uh, there has been over the centuries since the time of Christ, the mainstream of how we understand the Bible. And first, uh, what was happening is that uh, tradition was established. And those traditions brought about creeds and rituals and then after 1,500 years, reason kind of took over. I'm not opposed to reason, but what happened is we had the rise of denominational traditions because various individuals were seeing things slightly different. And then, of course, we come into the era of the 1900s and following where we have feelings seems to be the big emphasis. You gotta feel right about it. And everything goes through our emotions. And that, of course, is where the independent movements have started. Couple, last, or two weeks ago, I mentioned this particular uh, approach 
And that is, uh, you have the different uh, approaches to the Bible. And I suggested to you at the time that the Neo-Orthodox see themselves as before the Bible. And that is that the Bible is going to become the word of God to them. Not all of the scriptures are totally inspired to them, but it's got to become the word of God. Then, of course, you have the liberals who are above the Bible. They like the ethics of the Bible. They like the, uh, the kind of do's and don'ts if they fit into their system. The miraculous part of the Bible, they, eh, we, can't, we can't trust that. And of course, you have the traditionalist with the Roman Catholics and the Orthodox, uh, different Orthodox faith. And then finally, you have the fundamentalist evangelical. And I will, I will confess to you that the, the names and titles that I have given to these two uh, could possibly be debated. There could be other ones. But the basic difference is uh, the fundamentalists are quite rigid. Sometimes they can even get a little bit legalistic in the process. But then, of course, you have the evangelicals that see themselves as under the Bible. The Bible is the uh, primarily authority. Sometimes the fundamentalists contrive something that they hope the Bible teaches, and it's forced on people. Uh, they, they see things there that might be a little bit of a stretch. Question. Do any of you have any comments or questions about this? This is not hard and fast, but at the same time, it does point out some trends that are taking place in Christendom. And as I said last time, what does this have to do with archaeology? Absolutely nothing. It's just that it comes to me, I've got to mention it, otherwise I'll forget it. Any comments or questions about it? Now, see, I told you that I would get you all confused today. And see, I'm trying to keep my promise. All right, so let's, uh, let's go. Whoops. Oh, you know what? Oh, you know, that is, just a, uh, that is just a sign I ran across over the internet. And I thought, yeah, that, that, that'll, that'll kind of break the tension a little bit. <laughs> All right, one of the things we have been doing, and we're looking today at the... That was good, that took me a minute. Sorry. Where was that at? Huh? Where was that trespassing sign at? I have no idea. You just got a it's on the internet. Oh, okay. It could be anywhere in the world. Yeah. It's probably outside of some ranch in Wyoming, so... <laughs> or Montana, let's, let's say Montana. Anyway, what I have suggested over the uh, course of our study is that uh, for almost 400 years, the base of operation was uh, up in Shiloh. And then when David comes along, he moves the center of government and worship down to the city of Jerusalem. But what I want for us to look at today specifically, and if you have your Bible, Turn with me, please, to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 5. 2 Samuel, chapter 5. Saul 
is now dead. He was killed by the Philistines up around Mount Gilboa, which is up north and quite a bit into the eastern side of Israel. And that is significant, but we won't go into it right now. But in 2 Samuel chapter 5, it says this. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. Previously, when Saul was king over us, you were like the one who led us in and out, or out and in. You led us in battle. He goes on, The Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel. You will be a ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron. Then they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became the king, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel. Now, the interesting thing is if you look closely, Hebron is way down here. Jerusalem is way up there. Why is it significant that he moved the capital from Hebron to Jerusalem? Well, there is, I think, a very, very important and interesting reason. Hebron is right in the very center of the tribe of Judah's territory. And one of the things that happens is he moves the center of worship and government up to Jerusalem and notice what tribe is in that area. It's the tribe of Benjamin. <clears throat> Who was from the tribe of Benjamin? Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. I think there are probably two things that are taking place here. And I am, uh, I'm just kind of guesstimating at this point, but I think there's some credibility to it. Number two, by, le by leaving the area of Judah specifically and moving out of Judah, he is attempting to unite the kingdom. But at the same time, he is not going to offend all of these other tribes by remaining in the area of Judah. He's going to move out of the Judah, and hopefully that will be something that unifies the entire kingdom. Because he's not in just his land, he's moving over into uh, the area of uh, Benjamin. Saul was the king there. I do not know whether he is honoring Saul by moving up into that area. By the way, where was Saul from? Does anybody remember? Tarshish? Huh? Tarshish? I'm talking about King Saul. He was from Gibeah. He doesn't actually move into the town that Saul was from, but he does go into the tribe area that Saul lived in. I don't know whether that's a plus or a minus, but I think the reason that he moves to Jerusalem is to unite the kingdom. 
Now, the interesting thing that we discover is that what David does, starting with verse 6, now the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, and they said to David, you shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame shall turn you away. In other words, this city, this fortress is so well positioned that the blind and the lame can defend it. David, however, we discover, captures the stronghold of Zion. He renames it the city of David. Now notice, if you will, starting with verse 8, And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him reach the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul, through the water tunnel, Therefore they say, the blind or the lame shall not come into the house. So David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built all around from the millow inward. Now the question might be asked, what does the word millow mean? And I'm going to suggest to you that when David captures this city, it, and again, this is an artist's rendition. When David captures this city, we discover that the city is sitting on what is called the Ophel. On the, that side of the city is what is called, over here, is the Tyropean Valley. On this side of the city is what is called the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley comes up over and over again in the New Testament. Uh, it is the one that, Christ, and of course, the Mount of Olives is over on this side. The interesting thing is that when David begins to develop the city, and again, an artist's rendition, it looks like this. And he develops this lower half. Now, if you will look closely on the second thing down, it says he built the millow. The millow, because the sides of the hills are so steep, the potential for erosion is obviously there. So what he does is he builds the millow. The millow is probably the terraces on the sides of the hill so that there will not be erosion. In addition to that, it would be more difficult to take the city by an army. Now, again, this is just an artist's rendition. Uh, I got a little carried away, but uh, there are places where they have done this kind of thing, and uh, it prevents erosion. And uh, let me just give you a couple shots here. Can you imagine all the work that it takes to do that kind of thing? All right. You know, I was supposed to de delete that, but I'll... Oh, by the, let, me, let me just stop here for a minute and talk about this. If you will look at the text, and I'm not sure if this is the case or not, but when David establishes himself in the city of Jerusalem, the Philistines take notice of that. And you remember the Philistines live on the coastal plains. 
whereas the people of Israel live in the mountainous areas. The interesting thing is when the Philistines find out that David has now established himself in the city of Jerusalem, they recognize that, hey, we have got an individual here who is going to get become stronger and stronger. And the thing that we need to do is to eliminate that threat. What David does, apparently, is that he goes to the stronghold. Look, if you will, at verse 7. 17, I'm sorry. When the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to seek out David. And when David heard of it, he went down to the stronghold. Now, this is just something I heard. I'm not sure this is true. So take this with a grain of salt. You'll notice that in the previous mention of stronghold, it says the stronghold of Zion. Here, it says the stronghold. Is he talking about a different stronghold? I do not know. It has been suggested by some that because Masada down at the Dead Sea is positioned in such a way that it was a hideout for people. And of course, David would have been familiar with this because it is in the wilderness where he was constantly fleeing from Saul. And the springs of En Gedi are just 15 miles north of this area where David frequently went as a resting place. It is possible that this is the stronghold that is being referred to here. And the interesting thing that we discover is if you read just a little bit further, David may have fled to this area. He seeks counsel from the Lord as to whether he should go and defend his kingship and his kingdom from the Philistines. God says, yes, go. Now, all of you know what this is, don't you? This is Masada. This is where the Jews in 70, 71, 72, 73 AD defended themselves against the Roman general that wiped out the city of Jerusalem. Uh, none of you have been to Israel, right? Okay. Uh, I've been on top of this about six times. And I know I'm putting a feather in my hat, all right? You see the little snake trail there on that side? I've hiked that four times. The last time I hiked it, it only took me 45 minutes. Now it would take me 46 minutes. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Uh, the last time I hiked it, uh, 18, I was 50 years old, and there was an 18-year-old guy, and he beat me by one minute. Mm -hmm. But he now would probably beat me by two, two minutes. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Anyway, you get the idea. But it is, 
It is quite the fortress, and this of course gives you another picture of what the, uh, the snake trail is like on this side. But David possibly hung out there. And uh, of course it was, uh, it was uh, Herod the Great that developed that whole area. All right, now let's, uh, let's move on just a little bit because what I want you to focus on is David eventually buys the threshing floor up there at the top of Mount Moriah. And uh, when he does that, everything is now going to start shifting. The focus is not going to be on this part of the city, but it is now going to focus further to the north on Mount Moriah. And that Solomon is going to come and he is going to develop that upper part and that's where he's going to put his temple. Now the interesting thing about Solomon is that if you will look in your Bible and turn to the next couple pages to the book of 1 Kings because we have something very interesting taking place when we come to the book of Kings. When you come to 1 Kings chapter 6, it says, now it came about in the 480th year after the sons of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, that he began to build the house of the Lord. So as soon as he establishes himself as king, he starts building the house of the Lord. And of course, it probably is very similar to something like this. Whoops. Don't tell me. The Prince of Darkness strikes again. <laughs> <laughs> Do you notice the elk always pops up? That's so I don't forget what they look like. <laughs> oh my. All right, let's get into this again. computer skills what am I doing wrong there we go I've got a timer going Okay, we're getting hot. Okay, let's back up one. Is that it? Yeah. Yes. Whew. Some of you know anything about computers. Let me know how I can prevent that from happening. It happens about every two to three weeks. David, you probably know, don't you? I just say run it off your hard drive instead of the jump drive. Yeah. Someday I'll... Uh, well, just do that and delete it when you're done with it. <laughs> <laughs> Have two computers. 
Whichever other week. <laughs> it looks like that. Let's move on. And one of the things I want you to notice, and this to me is extremely telling, if you will look at the end of chapter 6, starting with verse 37. In the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv. And in the eleventh year, in the month of Bul, which is the eighth month, the house was finished throughout all its parts and according to all its plans. So he was seven years in building it. Now, seven years to build the temple. Next verse. Now Solomon was building his own house for 13 years. <clears throat> now that to me is very telling. Very telling. Seven years on the house of the Lord. Honorable, no question about it. 13 years on his own house. Uh, I don't know whether there is a message for us with regard to that or not. But at this point in time, because Solomon is now established, <coughs> his priorities seem to shift from his focus on God, his loyalty to God, his total devotion to God, to himself. I do not know if that is a tendency of older age. I do not know if that is a tendency of reaching your comfort zone, of just setting the things of God to the side and focusing on ourselves. I don't know. But the interesting thing that we discover about Solomon is that in chapter 9, we have a list of all of his accomplishments. And for the first 20 years of his reign, he accomplishes all of these things. But at the beginning of that 20th year, the thing that we discover is that God appears to Solomon a second time after he has reached his comfort zone, after he has established himself. And the interesting thing that we discover as well is that God appears to him for a second time. You remember he appeared to Solomon right at the very beginning of his reign. And you remember what Solomon asked for? He asked for wisdom. He didn't ask for anything for himself, and God commends him for that. And yet, on the second vision of God, when you come to chapter 9, now it came about when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon had desired to do. Everything's finished that the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time 
as he had peered to him at Gibeon way back 20 years earlier. And we don't have time to read through it all, but if you will notice, starting with verse 4, and as for you, if you do certain things, verse 5, then I will establish your throne. That's the positive side. Verse 6, but if you turn away, verse 7, then. So, Solomon, if you, if you continue to follow me, now that you're established, I'm going to continue blessing you. I'm going to continue watching over you, and the kingdom is going to continue to flourish. But if, Solomon, after you're established, what happens? And you start turning away, I'm going to drop the hammer. And sure enough, that's exactly what had happened. When you drop down to verse 10, and it came about at the end of 20 years in which Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house, he starts getting cocky. Starts getting cocky. I don't know about you, but I was reading through this uh, over the last couple of weeks, and I said to myself, you know, is there a tendency on the part of those of us who have been around, and we have been through the rough years, where you remember those early days when it was just a constant dependent on, dependence on God. And now that we've got the money in the bank, now that we have things paid for, now that we have things pretty much the way we have been anticipating and working toward all of our life, is it possible that we could just get a little bit careless? I think it is. And I know in my life, and I suspect that there may be that tendency in all of our lives to do a little bit of that. Well, let me, if I may, turn your attention to an archaeological side of things. Because if you will drop down to chapter 9 and verse 15 is what I want to focus on for the next several minutes. Now this is the account of the forced labor which King Solomon levied to build the house of the Lord, his own house, the millow, the millow is the terraces around the city, the wall of Jerusalem, and then notice, if you will, three key cities, Hatzor, Megiddo, and Gezer. Now, it is interesting that when you look at these three cities, from an archaeological perspective, there is a striking similarity that is taking place in these three cities. Again, from an archaeological perspective. Because years ago I had this book, and in a moment of weakness, I said, I'll never need this book again, and I gave it away. Kathleen Kenya, who was a... Uh, 
who was an archaeologist, very instrumental in some of the uh, work at Jericho. And you remember when we were talking about Jericho, I said that Jericho is just butchered as far as archaeological finds are concerned because everybody had a different philosophy as to how to do it. But anyway, she focused on the royal cities of Jerusalem, particularly the four cities of Solomon, Jerusalem, Hatzor, Megiddo, and Gezer. And one of the things that was discovered about these three cities, and again, this is uh, a chart that I have already showed you. This is the way uh, archaeology works. You have the natural here, then you have the Canaanite era, then you have the Israel era on top of that. There's sometimes a thousand years between the base of the hill and the very top that they're excavating. Another, in addition to all of that, we discover that the ideal place for a city in the ancient world had three, or excuse me, four things defensible, had to be near a water supply, it had to be near arable land that they could farm and stuff of that nature. And then finally, it had to be near a trade route. And so these cities that we're talking about were three, or excuse me, four cities that met that qualification. Now, there are virtually hundreds of cities throughout the land of Israel, even today, that fit that category. But these Four things are not that crucial anymore as they were in ancient times. So one of the things that we discover is that sometimes a tell has kind of a little different format. And it would be great if all of these different layers were like pancakes stacked on top of each other. Just take the first pancake off and you can check, take the next one off, it doesn't work like that because there are some of these cities that have multiple, in fact, some cities have as many as 30 different layers piled up on top of each other. But let's look for briefly at these cities of Solomon. Now, Hatzor in the north, Megiddo right in the middle, and then Gezer right at the bottom. The interesting thing is that these three cities particularly are right near a trade route. This was the route that people would take, and you might say to yourself, well, why didn't they go along the coast? Because years and years ago, it was all swampland. All of this was swampland years and years ago. So they would take the higher road up into what is called the Shafela, the foothills, because they wouldn't have to deal with swampy land. So here is Solomon. He builds these three cities. And the thing that is really interesting about these three cities, particularly, is when they started doing archaeological work, they discovered that the gates of those cities were absolutely similar. Uh, we're going to look at these gates here for just a few minutes. Solomon's gates, Gezer, Megiddo, Hatzor. Now, as you're entering, and Megiddo is the, probably the best example, as you're entering into these gates, you come in and you have to make a 
left turn or a right turn. Now, that's interesting. Can you see how this would be a defensible way uh, to build a gate? Another interesting thing is that you see these different compartments as you're getting to the end of the gate. What kind of people, if a city is being attacked, could fit in these various compartments? The soldiers. Passport control. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> That's right. Passport control with swords and everything else. But anyway, uh, that, these three uh, cities, archaeological work has been done, and they have discovered that every single one of them have exactly the same kind of gate. And in the text of scripture of 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 15, we discover that these cities were the ones that Solomon singled out because if an army is coming through, they're going to have to go by some of these cities. So, Hatsor is way up here in the north. Uh, uh, it's probably about the second or maybe the third or fourth time I went to Israel. Every time we, I would go to Israel, we would bypass Hatsor and we would go up to Dan. Dan is, you know, everybody's got to go to Dan, right? Because that's kind of a nature preserve up there. So we would pass by Hatsor, and I think on the third or fourth time I was over there, I went up to the guide. I said, sir... I have never been to Hotsor. Can we stop at Hotsor? He said, oh, if it makes you happy, we'll stop at Hotsor. So we did. And it was, it was the highlight of my trip. I'm, I'm being a little sarcastic, but it really was, because I realized the significance of Hotsor. Now, this is the way Hotsor looked years and years ago. The interesting thing about Hotsor is there's the tell. It's predominant in this valley. But another interesting thing about Hatsor is you can tell that not a lot of it has been excavated. What has been excavated is the gates right there. That's about the only thing. The tell of Hatsor is two hundred acres big and there have been a guesstimation that it would take 600 years to properly excavate all of Hatsor. Now one of the things I mentioned way way back is that just about every single one of the excavations in the land of Israel just a fraction of them have been excavated. And so we know very, very little. You remember something about the time Josh, or Josh, Joshua captured the city of Hatsor? You met, what did he do to the city of Hatsor? Do you remember? Burned it. Huh? Did he burn it? He burned it. It is only one of three cities that were burned when Joshua captured the land. 
The others were Jericho, Ai, Hatzor. Hatzor was a prominent city way up in the north. And you can see how much of the area is yet to be excavated. It just isn't there. But the thing I want you to notice is that the part that has been excavated, they have discovered this gate, a gate that is similar to other cities that Solomon saw as royal cities. Next, and if you go to Hatzor now, it's, it's quite a bit more developed. This is, this is the excavation, and of course, the uh, people that are doing the excavation and the archaeological work, uh, they've set up a little place there where they can shade themselves and so forth. The next one that I want you to notice is Megiddo. Megiddo is probably the most prominent tell that you can see anywhere because it just sticks right up in the very middle of a valley. It is prominent, you can see it from miles and miles away, whereas some of these other tells, they're just part of the rolling hills. Whereas Megiddo, is just, it just pops up out of the ground. Uh, Megiddo is probably one of the most excavated cities in all of Israel. The interesting thing about Megiddo is that no archaeological work had been done at Giddo before 1900. And then a group came in, did some small archaeological work, another group came in. Finally, the Institute of Oriental Research came in, financed by John D. Rockefeller and around the 1920s to the 1930s. John D. Rockefeller wanted this particular site to be the standard for how archeological work was going to be done. And so he invested millions in it. Guess what happened? They ran out of money. Which is, you know, that, that's fine. They ran out of money. But you can immediately see that a lot of archaeological work has been done there. But at exactly the same time, there is a lot more to do. Here are some things that we discover about uh, the tell. Uh, there is, if you get down to a certain level, a Canaanite place of worship a Canaanite altar. Now as you look at that particular altar, and uh, here is a close-up of it, uh, there has been some reconstruction of it, obviously, but one is, what is one of the distinctives of this particular situation? One of the things that God forbid as far as His altars when the people built. Cut stone. How's that? There were cut stones. Cut stones, that's one feature. What's another feature? There were not to be any steps. Just pile the stones up. This is typically a high place. And this is where sacrifice would be done, offerings would be offered and stuff of that nature. 
But the thing I want you to notice particularly is at Megiddo, this is the gate. And you can see these rooms off to the side. And you walk in there and you say to yourself, wow, it was quite a facility. The most enamoring feature of Megiddo is that at the visitor center, they have the layer of Solomon, and then this particular model will can be, they go like this, and the top layer comes completely up, and you see the layer underneath that, which is really kind of fascinating. It gives you an idea of what archaeological work can do, because they've done the research on what the top layer is, They've done the research on the Canaanite level, and it's quite instructive. Now, this is just the last one, and this is probably the tell uh, of the royal cities that has had the least amount of work done on it, and that is down at Gezer. And again, you can see land is developed all the way around it. Just this little part has been excavated and you can see that only the gate has really been exposed. Again, arable land. Archaeologicals, archaeologists have set up their tent there. But the interesting thing is they do so much work and then they abandon it. And what happens? All the weeds grow up and they don't need to do it. Why? It costs money. People are just not interested. And that's the end of the day. All right, next week what I want to do is I want to go through probably about five or six key archaeological findings that have taken place over the many, many years, maybe the last hundred years, key findings and just touch on those and talk about their significance. Any comments or questions? All right, thank you folks. Thank Appreciate you. it very much. Uh, I hope this has been helpful to some degree, but it is kind of fascinating.